0: to be saturday what day is it today wednesday
1: exactly
0: Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon to the Falcon screen and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello, hello. And not by Virat Nehru this week. Virat Nehru is in Melbourne, where we soon be joining him. He is covering the Indian Film Festival of Melbourne, as he has alluded to, Sharat Khan is in town. And we know if you could see Virat now, he would be very, very happy, very excited. He's going to tell us all about it next week.
1: Yeah, he's also covering some of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Uh, where glenn will be very soon
0: yes uh, we will be down there i'm pretty keen a lot of the stuff we missed in sydney some new premieres finally catching baccarat but Oso, um alice uh, underground city there's quite a few Curse, quite a few very keen for but we're not covering melbourne film festival this week we're covering uh maybe one of the biggest releases of this probably the biggest release this month if we don't accumulate yeah. I'm sure. But probably the most anticipated <laughs> release of
1: this month, let's be fair. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we're also covering... Midsummer. Yeah, two of the major American films of the year.
0: So we'll be covering Midsummer later in the episode, which is out now, but first we're going to be covering Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is in cinemas tomorrow. It is starring... Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, an aging, you know, TV cowboy in the style of Rawhide or Bonanza, and his best and only friend and driver and stuntman Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. We follow them through days and periods in Hollywood in nineteen period Hollywood in 1969, and ancillary matters that go on around them, including that of the lives of their neighbours. One of whom is Sharon Tate. Looming over this film is the spectre of the real life shocking Tate and Bianca, LaBianca, excuse me, Tate-Labianca murders. And we also follow a number of other prominent figures. Some uh, it's a, it's implied made up, but some real. Are uh, we meet Bruce Lee in this film, and a few others we follow Rick and Cliff and others. Wandering around the Hollywood Hills and the Going Quintessential. Yeah, Quintessential Hollywood of fifty fifty years ago. Fifty years ago. It's this has been very anticipated. It premiered had its world premiere at Cannes and Australian premiere at Myth.
1: Yeah, it was uh, at Cannes, it played twenty five years to the day after Pulp Fiction premiered. And he rushed to get it done. They might have had a slightly
0: different version from what yeah. we saw. Um, it is a, The final cut is two hours, 41 minutes. It's one of Tarantino's longest. Not quite as long as Hateful Eight, I don't think.
1: Thank God. No, actually, I, I could have uh, gone longer in this film, whereas Hateful Eight was really, really pushing it. But I suspect Glenn might disagree with me on that.
0: I do. Uh, we have quite divergent views on this film. Um, so we're just going to talk about how we felt about it then fight a little and move on to Midsummer.
1: And I think, Chris, you're first. Okay, um, I was really, really charmed by this film. But uh, I'm I'm already looking at Glenn's... <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm gearing up, gearing up, just like sitting in the corner here, just like, ready to go. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was really, really charmed by this film. It ta- has a kind of loose structure. Uh, I, I would compare it to Jackie Brown um, more than any of Tarantino's other films in terms of feel because it's not so much driven by escalating suspense as much as there is... Suspense brewing in the background that's occasionally crossed to. And it's really more about um, a day in the life and it's a classic Hangout film. I think as opposed to really um, trying to bring you into, uh, as, like I was saying before, a, a really hooky kind of plot line, um, this is more about immersing you in the texture of 60s pop culture And in that respect, I think Tarantino is really playing to his strengths. I've gotten to the point where often I'm annoyed by his pop culture references in his other films. But here, because, uh, you know, it's not just Tarantino showing off how cool he is. This movie is set in the world of 60s pop culture, so it feels so much more natural. And Tarantino's ability to evoke those textures, I think, is here at its height. It's as much about the characters as it is about... You know, like the sound of radio ads, the look of the billboards, the production design of recreating the 60s Hollywood is, I think, I found it intoxicating. I, I thought it was just pure bliss to be in here. And Robert Richardson's photography is incredible. As a, um, In terms of how the characters are developed, it's really, like I said before, a hangout film. It's about spending time with them and getting to know their quirks. And I found um, the, the characters really charming. Um, it's really about Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who is a TV cowboy who's feeling like his career is coming to an end and he's struggling with feelings of irrelevance. Um, and it, it's about watching how he goes about his business and a couple of days into life where he grapples with self-loathing, essentially. Um, and it's more represented through a few scenes of him at work and hanging out with his pal Cliff yeah it's a very it's a loose film in terms of not having that narrative propulsion but at the same time i think it's quite tightly structured in other ways um it, yeah I, i'm curious to hear what glenn has to say
0: yeah i t- took quite a different view in this i w- i didn't find this particularly enjoyable there were scenes that really stood out to me one of which is the ending which we won't be discussing this is a spoiler free review we should note we will be discussing this film in some more detail with Bharat. Next week where we'll be doing a spoiler discussion And discussing aspects of the ending as well We're going to reserve that till next week I'll start with the things I really liked about this film It's one of my very favourite Brad Pitt performances He gets a lot of time to go into a particularly interesting character a, more, a plaintive character compared to what he's used to. And I'd actually be surprised if he didn't merit an Oscar, no, uh, Oscar nomination for this A Best Actor nomination, not a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Car- category
1: say. Freud has happened before and probably will happen again. Um, yeah. I, I thought he was completely charming in this role. I would actually say DiCaprio in some ways matched him because his, his character is much more cartoonish and his performance is much more cartoonish than Brad Pitt's. But uh, DiCaprio gets to do some incredible work because... We see Rick Dalton, his character, acting, and DiCaprio manages to act as Rick Dalton giving a good performance, or as Rick Dalton flubbing his lines. So there's multiple levels of immersion into the character there. And, you know, when you see Rick Dalton acting, it's not just a standard DiCaprio performance, it's a Rick Dalton performance. And th- these aren't. it's not just a few lines, it's extended scenes showing you Rick Dalton at work.
0: I've said it before on the show. It's a special pleasure in film for me to see actors act not just acting on screen as actors, but acting badly. And it was particularly well done in this. Um
1: but we also get to see him act well. yes, so there there, there was yeah. a
0: pleasure and stay beyond the credits to to mm. that point. yeah, I also really liked Margaret Robbie in this. um there is the main criticism that has been in the press lately this film. I think it's a very undue criticism is that um she is underused and is not merit, has not got enough lines in this film. I think that's completely unfair she doesn't have as many lines as many of her co-stars but her presence um, on screen and off screen is felt throughout the film and her whether it be her going up to movie theater and smiling gushing as she goes into one of her films or dancing at one of the various parties she goes to it has as much of an impact as one of rick dalton's monologues so i think um, she wasn't shortchanged in this i really appreciated their performance
1: I thought it was a fantastic performance, too. I think it speaks to, though, the, uh, this criticism, what Tarantino's trying to do with her character. I think that she was more a symbolic kind of presence, um, representing a kind of an innocence that's been lost. Uh, this is, above all, a really romantic view, um, and I, I think that that's what he's going for, this romanticized, idealized symbol. And a lot of the time, rather than hearing her talk, we're hearing other characters talk about her, so I think there's been clearly a an in, intention to keep her more in the background as a kind of symbol that, as opposed to making her really you know engaged with the drama i think that's intentional whether people think um that have take issue with that or, or view it as sexist i'm not sure um we could get into whether this film is sexist in great depth actually Which is later on an
0: aspect of the discussion I want to come to. Yeah, um, me
1: too. I remember a couple
0: of years ago when Charles Manson died, a number of papers ran an obituary of Sharon Tate as opposed to Charles Manson. I thought that was very shrewd, I thought that was very elegant. And I think this film follows in that spirit. Yeah. We're seeing a life not just that was lived lively when she was alive but a life that could very life that would very well have gone on to live many more vibrant fruitful years and there is something incredibly touching and romantic about not just robbie's portrayal, but um tarantino's depiction thereof
1: there's one little moment where there's there's an extended scene where we see margot robbie watching herself on a cinema screen it's very charming yeah but in the way um which did happen which was yeah. i think how she spent right a lot of the the details about margot robbie and Sharon Tate in this film are, are very uh, accurate to the facts, as I understand it. But there's a moment that we see her walking in afternoon sunlight towards the the cinema, and the camera kind of pans down to look at her, you know, her feet and her legs walking across, and her shadow cast in the background, and the golden sunlight. And I, I it really hit me. I thought this is this is so romantic. You know, it's sort of like, wow, it, like the Tarantino in the camera is saying, like, wow, remember this age when this beautiful woman walked on this ground and the light was shining. Um, it, and I loved that. Yeah, I appreciated the, that. There's little touches like that that um, I think really sing. It's a surprisingly sweet and charming film in a lot of ways, given the reputation Tarantino has and given how... vast vi- aspects
0: of it are. Yeah.
1: And also given how nasty Hateful Eight was top to bottom really
0: yeah just a lot of terrible characters a lot of good characters in this film mm. um on the violence are uh, we not going to be discussing um, many aspects of this plot i will say though it posits ideas similar to how well, the nightingale posited that amidst good there can still be incredible evil and whether the only response to this evil is itself violence mm. um it raises incredible questions of that and i found that fascinating and we're going to get into that more next week but I did say I didn't enjoy this film, so I should say what I didn't like about it. One of the main criticisms of this is with the same I would posit at A Star Is Born. I didn't like many aspects of A Star Is Born because I felt it was one of the most inside baseball films about Hollywood designed to appeal not to a mainstream audience, but to people not just in Hollywood and the machine, but at a high level who have... Either ingratiated themselves in it or have made it their life's work, you know every aspect of Hollywood lore. Um, this feels very much like, not just for the inside references, but um, a lot of the incredibly obscure subject matter that Tarantino um, actively pursues. I liked how, in some respects, it was a dreamlike film where you wander through with no real through line. However, you look at a film, a couple of films that try to do similar things but with some plot elements. I would refer to Mulholland Drive, that was a Token David Lynch reference for the week, mm. and Hail Caesar. However, Mulholland Drive had a bit more of a through line. I quite liked Mulholland Drive with some reservations. And Hail Caesar, it had about as much of a through line as this film, but it was under two hours compared to this, which was extensively longer. And I think. Two hours, 45 minutes, or something like that. Yeah. stated it's welcome to a great extent. Um, speaking of, now talking about Tarantino, I've always liked Tarantino because he has a Incredible visual flair I saw an article which noted that he is a genre Unto himself, I do agree with that But whether you look at this film as a genre Tarantino as a genre Or compared to any other film that you might See in this year or years past Visually it's very unimaginative There's no, aside from I think a couple of scenes including the one Chris referred to There's no particularly distinct visual Flourishes, either of which Tarantino Or his peers have been well known for I think it's very standard, it's shot very Standardly that's a word Stanley, but and i found that aspect of it uh to be disappointing i was surprised can in i that regard uh, okay um I, yeah i have more but let's let's we can fix that on this point
1: yeah 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 I, I actually really disagreed i found the camera work in this to be really actually quite elegant it is more restrained than say something like kill bill but i think it's much more sophisticated in terms of what he's doing visually um seems like there's an extended sequence at the the Spahn ranch where the the manson family set out where um it's almost almost leone-esque as the title is alluding to yeah <laughs> um, you know in There's terms a bit of a lot of homages to spaghetti
0: westerns and there very light, yeah
1: um, in terms of how the characters are placed across the frame um and i th- think that he's using you know the, like the distance from the camera work and the the slow kind of movements in a real in a restrained way but building a lot of tension um i've there's a very few actually actual close-ups in this film, so when they hit, I found that they were quite affecting. Um, yeah, I, I I disagree that it it wasn't so that it was boring visually. I like I this. Mean, yeah, the the it a lot of this movie is following cars around, you know, from a distance, and I think I think really the visual approach is you know bringing the camera back and letting the production design details breathe really. Um, but there's something else you said before we move on to the next thing on your list of complaints yeah just uh, is if that's okay yeah, yeah go oh, ahead actually, yeah, no, no, by all means yeah yeah when, when you were saying that it was a little bit inside baseball yes i get what you mean um for me this this wasn't so much of an issue i i understand where you're coming from in being annoyed by hollywood uh fixating on hollywood um and that's a trend we, we see we seem to be seeing more and more of since they've been rewarding themselves for making movies about Hollywood with the lo, you know the last decade of Star best picture of winners. Is, um, Hugo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, even things like The Shape of Water. You yeah. Know, it's like, how great is Hollywood? Um, and but Tarantino's always been doing that. I don't think he's just following a trend. And it, I, I understand right now that nostalgia for the past Hollywood is going to be at a, at a high as the streaming age seems to be killing off. A lot of people's interest in the cinematic experience but um the reason why it wasn't so much of an issue for me is that i think he goes from the specific into the universal because the feeling of i'm getting older and i'm not so relevant anymore i think applies to a lot of people and i think the, the film is speaking to that as opposed to just specifically the world of the actors even though it, it comes from um, a lot of this movie is is dealing with the specifics of the world so. Um, I don't think there'll be nothing for you if you're not interested in in movies for that reason. But I do think it helps because a lot of it is business talk. Um, for me, it was just just a complete immersion in that kind of world. So I was all right. I I was charmed by it. I guess if um, I went in resistant to the idea of another celebration of Hollywood, but I, I ended up being won over because I guess that the love for this kind of milieu is deep within me. If it's not deep it's within deep, it's you, it's deep within
0: me too. Okay, I simply found that the scenes where it was more focused on the '60s era, the loss of innocence surrounding that, whether it be the party where we actually did meet Polanski—I mm. um, figure we're going to get to soon—were uh, much more engaging than the, um, you know, we're going to talk about this aspect of Hollywood and this obscure, whether this be this obscure film or this thing that I'm personally fixated about, rather than being a general cultural interest. I'm um, just on the matter of the visual approach I liked the scene at the ranch it, uh, accepting the ending it was probably my favourite sequence in the film it actually you compared it to the Sergio Leone Westerns I had a actually I would compare it to the of the Lambs in right. the way it tempered the scene um, having said that I don't feel it was nearly as interesting or um, hold on to you as well as still my favourite modern Tarantino film in Glorious Bastards and I refer to the exceptional scene which is taught on all screenwriting classes where um, they're in the restaurant and there's the confrontation between Michael Fassbender character and a number of of uh, the opposing army. Um, yeah, I the agree. I,
1: the, the tension, I thought the buildup of tension was incredible. But I really appreciated the way that this, this movie is jumping in genre. You know, some scenes, uh, we get an immersion through Rick Dalton's work into the Western. Um, this uh, ranch scene is a, a build-up suspense scene. A lot of the movie operates in a comedy register. There's a lot going on. Um, on the matter of
0: just finally on the matter of the visual technique, I look at a I look at the sequence, the much discussed sequence in, featuring Bruce Lee, which we'll get into in a moment, and compare that to a similar sequence, not a, a sequence in, in Pulp Fiction, where similarly there was a remove. You saw two main figures something about the. At the Uma Thurman, John Travolta, famous dancing scene. And I look at the a different approach to that. The one in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was very conventionally shot. Yes, it said a withdrawal to look at the production design, which was beautiful. But there was a beautiful production design and Pulp Fiction even more so. But the camera would loom in or zoom in at key points at pivotal moments to focus on a character's reaction or a burgeoning realisation. I think it did that it Did it much better in the likes of Pulp Fiction. I think it is a little unfair to compare Tarantino to some of his previous and stellar and still better work. But uh, having said that, I do think this is not as, as of market equality. Um, on the matter of the Bruce Lee scene, there's been a lot of discussion about the scene, whether it was appropriate, whether his depiction was appropriate. I it, this this film this sequence avowedly is in a dreamlike, uh, you know, re- someone trying to recall aspects. So you, you, it's it's clear in the narrative, even though it's a little unclear that this is an individual's recollection as opposed to quote unquote what actually happened. Mm.
1: Now I, th- hap- I think we should get into some of these more specific details in the spoiler discussion maybe. That's okay, that's fine. Yeah. What I would
0: simply say is I think the f- the film either focuses on broad caricatures of um type Hollywood types or in or real life individuals when it does focus on real-life individuals predominantly Sharon Tate it's urging you to say this is if stylized if exaggerated what they were actually like and and that can that can fairly be imparted to the Bruce Lee depiction to the extent that it was not a depiction of who he was I think does him a disservice Um, I think on the matter of um, we talked about the there's been a lot of discussion as to whether Tarantino is sexist, or whether this film is sexist. I think this film is very cognizant of the Me Too movement. It poses a lot of questions rather than posing a lot of answers
1: about the Me Too movement. And I would specifically note. um, Look, there's an aspect of the backstory of Brad Pitt's character. Again, we'll get to this next week. But um, for me, the film would be better off without it. It sat strangely with me, and it definitely seems to relate to the Me Too movement, but it seems to do so in a a kind of smug way. Um, And. It, it, I, I felt, felt like Tarantino's miscalculated because he's added an element of, um, potentially an element of misogyny. and Once, it, once that idea lodges itself in, in your head, you're way less likely to give him a pass on other aspects of the film. And I, I think there's a big miscalculation. I,
0: yeah, I, I think it's more simply that he was wanting to put ideas forward rather than say, this is where I stand on this. Either way, notably, this is the first film he's done in a very long time without the collaboration of Harvey Weinstein. And those I note two figures in history have been controversial for extremely different reasons, Roman Polanski and Charles Manson, while they figure very prominently in the story, have about, share about a minute's screen time between them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's very deliberate for the reasons I've stated.
1: Well, I think some people – I've seen some people say, oh, well – uh, Rick Dalton idolizes Roman Polanski. How can you just mention that and not mention his his uh, sex scandal? Obviously, this film is set before the sex scandal, but I think not mentioning it is is very much the point. The idea of this film, which the title is getting at, is a fairy tale and a wish to go back to what Tarantino is imagining, at least as a pre-loss of innocence moment. It's like couldn't wouldn't it be great to forget? You know. Go back to 1969 and, and think of Roman Polanski just as like the great director of Rosemary's Baby instead of thinking of him as a pedophile rapist. Which is surely
0: what um, a lot what is weighed heavy on the minds of a lot of Hollywood. We're going to be talking about this in much more detail and in spoiler discussion next week with Veratniru. And Once Upon a Time of Hollywood, though, is in cinemas from tomorrow. We're looking forward to continuing talking about what there's is sure a, to be a much debated there's movie. There's a lot to say about this film. And we'll be back in a moment, speaking all things midsummer. Stay tuned. Have you ever seen a traditional Japanese kite? Bring out your inner child with the colourful, intricate kites at Edo in the Sky, an exhibition featuring 32 traditional Japanese kites handcrafted by internationally known kite master, Mikio Toki, on display from July 10 to October 12 at the Japan Foundation Sydney. Visit jpf.org.au for more details. The Japan Foundation Sydney sponsors 2SER.
1: Join us at UTS Open Day on Saturday, August 31st and discover what it's like to study at Australia's number one young university.
0: Explore your future campus, learn more about our wide range of course options and discuss how to manage your uni application. UTS Open Day, Saturday, August 31st. Register now at openday.uts.edu.au. Two SER sponsors. And welcome back to Film Fight Club. We are talking Midsummer, the new film from hereditary director Ari Astor, which is in cinema's now only his second feature film. It is starring Florence Pug of Lady Macbeth, The Commuter, um the Robert the Bruce films that came out on Netflix about a year ago, and Jack Rayner of Transformers Fame, William Jackson Harper, who plays Cheaty for fans of the good place. Uh, Will Poulter, who was Sid in Toy Story, and uh, there's a few other prominent actors. Who I'm missing? Someone.
1: Will Poulter was Sid in Toy Story. Well, that, that's, the, that's online, the joke. That's
0: the joke. Yeah, okay, he wasn't Sid in Toy Story. He was in Detroit and where the, the Millers Revenant. and he's great. Yeah, it's probably the best thing in this movie. Um, we at least the best actors I should say. This is uh, about a the Florence Pugh character who early in the film suffers a, an, a very huge family tragedy. Tragedy, and with her uh, partner of a number of years, who uh, they don't have the strongest relationship. It's very strongly depicted at the beginning of the film, and his close group of friends, who aren't the great, oh, the greatest guys in the world, decide that they are going to go to Sweden with one of their friends. Uh, to witness this midsummer festival and they bring a uh, Florence Bjork's character comes along, everyone goes along and they find themselves in this idyllic, beautiful, crisp, Swedish summerscape. However, strange things start to happen. Um, there's a lot of uh, intaking of partaking of substances and things start to spiral. Scary things from there. Yes. Um, obviously this film evokes images of the Wicker Man and, and other like fair, and we're left in a lot of uh, questioning as to who, what is behind something, or what is going on.
1: Yeah, you, you said before that um, that the two uh, leads don't have the strongest relationship. It's it's to be more specific, she leans up, is leaning upon him for emotional support, and he's I, it sounds like just about done with the relationship, but lacks the courage to go on with it so instead is basically manipulating her um and initially i found some comedy in this film at just how unpleasant and repellent a character he was and his friends and his friends yeah they who are just absolutely awful to our, our lead and he when she's going through at a time of incredible emotional upheaval is basically offering her no support at all but i found the way that um it, his relationship with her is depicted to be to one note after a while. Like it works if you're going to view it as very, very dark comedy, but after a while um, it's so lacking in nuance. And really this relationship is the core of everything in this film. I, I, you could say, say that everything is, is that all of the pagan horror madness stuff is really just like spinning out of the character drama of her horror of her relationship with this guy. Being trapped with, you know, the premise is finding a place for them to be trapped with. But given the um, importance to the narrative, I did find it a little bit one note. And that's representative of how I feel about the film in general. Everything just felt a little bit too surface level and not developed enough. And that means that the running time feels punishing. It's like two hours and 20 minutes, and there's a lot of dead time. On the matter of relationship,
0: I've just, it was simply that I didn't find it very believable. No. I don't put this down to Florence Puck. I put it down to Jack Rainer. Puck is a great actor. She's got an amazing future ahead of her, and she's already done amazing things. Jack Rayner is not nearly on her level, or not nearly on the level of any of the other figures in this film. You refer to the comedy. I, Will Poulter was still my favorite thing about this, and that's because he can imbue the sinister sequences with a degree of... Hilarity. There's a lot of moments where things are pointed out or things are said that could um, amount to laughs, but in the hands of Pug and Poulter, and I'd extend that to Harper, they actually become uh, quite eerie. On the matter of the runtime, this film really overstated its welcome. It could have been half an hour, even 40 minutes shorter. The reason I say this is that it really depends on... You get to this place and you wonder what is going on and who is in it. And for the latter element, there's still a lot of ambiguity for a lot of the film. There comes a point... At before about the f- 40 minutes left where it becomes a fait accompli and you know exactly how things are going to transpire. And at that point, and I m- label this as suspense horror, the suspense comes out of it and all you're left is with the imagery, which Esther is trying to recognize. A lot of this imagery is beautiful, but at the hour 30-minute point or even further than that, it just becomes repetitive because we've seen a lot of this yeah. play out before.
1: And it also... Uh- I found a lot of the imagery kind of overdetermined because a lot of it's following the same visual approach. It's got these robotically perfect kind of camera moves, um, which I guess is when a um, not as often spoken about example of how digital technology is shaping the way that films look and feel. This was beautifully shot, I will give him that. It is beautifully shot, but it's very much shot around the same location with the same kind of visual strategies of Kubrick-like perfection, um, you know, framing scary things in, the mid- in big open planes. And after... You know, in such a long film, that becomes tiresome in my, you know, um, I, I got, you know, we're in a very limited lo- locale and there, so there simply isn't just enough variation in kind of the visual strategies and the way things play out, um, the way the rituals play out, not just visually, but in, in terms of the narrative function. It, it, it is, it's a super repetitive film full of characters who act in, in dumb horror movie character ways, really. But I think the, the directorial technique is, it's arresting enough to a point but I think there just aren't enough ideas in this film.
0: I think the imagery draws not just on The Wicked Man as I refer to a number of other films which deal with the occult. It goes to, you know, hits all the points of what we come to expect with films that cover the occult. But it also draws on imagery from Astor's own filmography and that I include Hereditary. I still think this is a better film than Hereditary. Um, it hits a lot more scarier beats. The characters it, are better drawn. Hmm. However, anyone who has seen Hereditary will strangely recognize in the director's only second feature some stark and um, strange Distinct similarities.
1: In some ways, look, it's it's more human than hereditary, and I thought this film starts really well. Um, it's just, again, we we spend way too long in this one location for there to be as little variation visually and narratively as there is. Um, I think you know with this the current slow cinema movement, we're in the middle of when it comes to art films, has resulted in people just feeling like they don't need an editor. It's starting to seem like we're seeing way too many of these movies that use slowness and long shots as an excuse to allow a movie to go on, you know, um, to there's the belief that, Attention will magically be invested into the proceedings
0: now we're going to be continuing our discussion of midsummer on the podcast and you can catch midsummer in cinemas now once upon a time in hollywood is in cinemas from tomorrow and we'll be back next week with right Nehru talking more about once upon a time in hollywood including the spoilers discussion and it's a discussion about festivals happening around the town and things you can look out for Also, oh, sign up for the city underground film festival launch their program yesterday so check that out this has been glenn falconstein and chris evans stay tuned for the sonic assassin have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies and subscribe to the podcast. Good night. And welcome back to Film Fight Club. So we're talking midsummer, which is in cinemas now, the new Ari Aster film. Another thing I, I actually really liked about this, I see very few films which make good scary use out of light and daylight certainly and we saw this in Arias's previous F people pivot directors pivot to the dark to be scary um sweden and uh, Scan- scandinavia more generally is very well known for situating noir for giving us a scary and vibrant and certainly opening shots are very classic scandinavian nordic noir dark foreboding shadows and some of the drug-induced hazes at the beginning of the film play very much into that however the scariest sequences take place in bright stark sunlight and we're conditioned to feel more anticipatory and scared as these sequences come on you don't see this very often in cinema because it's very hard to make something scary out of the known and in daylight everything is shaped and seen and i think it actually complements the film because in this, a lot of things are hidden in plain sight. Um, this thing, um, elements, imagery shows you obliquely, but still directly how things are going to play out. At one point, a character actually tells someone how um something is going to transpire, and you don't quite believe because you also by this point are in a bit of have a bit of a hazy feeling what is going on. I'm, I'm bound to expect anything. But it's the idea of hiding something in plain sight is something that a lot of directors shy away from. I'm glad Asta didn't because it was one of the, some of the more redeeming and better
1: aspects of Midsummer. The daylight horror thing. Again, um, I, I just feel like every visual idea overstays its welcome. Uh, you know. There's something creepy it, I didn't It was overdone Yeah There's something creepy It's, it's creepy That the, the light's shining on it And it's right there In the middle of the frame Look at my Kubrick Shots Yeah It's okay I do think
0: he used it Way too much Having said that at least for the first hour and even hour fifteen minutes, it felt novel. It felt unnerving because I found you it weren't not sure what to expect because you weren't pivoting to the dark scenes for the scary
1: reveals. I found it um, very unnerving for the in- initial maybe hour. I think I, I got bored of what this movie was doing before you did, but oh, I,
0: I, I could, it could have been a hundred minutes.
1: You could yeah, have cut this to a hundred minutes. You could have cut it's a hundred
0: and forty.
1: Yeah, it's it's really really it way too punchy. long. It's punchy. But but I, I'm just maybe this I'm still burnt out from the Sydney Film Festival. But what I was saying at the end of the radio show, there's just so much. Um, there's there's maybe you know you look at someone like Tarkovsky and you feel a sense of or awe, or awe, 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 for a more recent example, someone like a Peter we are ascetical, You know, there's a sense of awe, um, awe or of, tr- of transcendence. Um, deep thought coming in from prolonging the length of a shot in this sense i get the idea that ariest is going for you know building dread by holding the shot as long as possible but it doesn't always work it usually doesn't work <laughs> these days it seems um the, the expectation that um it, that you replicate those kind of stylistic strategies and the magic just happens but it show it the All of the overlong, overly padded out art films we're seeing at the moment really just illustrate how much is really going on under the surface that can't just be directly transposed um, in order to make those films work. It's not as simple as just not cutting. You know, (laughs) Um, you you need to really, really work at the atmosphere. And I think inexperienced directors probably shouldn't be working so much in this ki- um, kind of territory it, it's very difficult to have something so powerful that the audience is is interested in the absence of more traditional uh you know more traditional ways of keeping the audience's attention basically if i think back to the arthouse films of the past we obviously slow slow cinema has been with us for decades but what happened to someone like like tom tikva like you know run Lola, run was a sensation at at art and <laughs> cinemas when it, it came out and that movie is really fast why is no one experimenting with speed anymore why does everything have to be slow Anyway, that's my rant.
0: I actually liked the slow sequences at the beginning of the film before they got to Sweden. I did too. Much not... more than the uh, extended sequences later in the film because at this point, it's much more high tension. Uh, you expect action to transpire, mm. and the directorial style should have complemented that.
1: Yeah, the, the opening of the film is actually really extraordinary. Mm. Um, it puts you into this dark character space, into the head of the Florence Pugh character. Which she
0: handles well. And more than that... I was really worried because my main criticism of hereditary was that about 20 minutes into that, 30 minutes into that film, a very shocking event occurs and accompanying imagery. And I was numb after that because I knew nothing I would see would measure up to that. I was concerned it from the very beginning there, yeah. of the film, this film, having seen a horrific event in imagery to accompany it, that a similar effect would occur. That didn't happen because there were a lot of scares and jolts um, of a very different nature.
1: This, this film really isn't, though... It is. It's definitely a horror film, but horror suspense. I'd say it's more suspense genre yeah, than a horror genre. Yeah, I agree with that. It. It's not really putting you. You know, it's not really. Um, uh, I'm all over the place today. <laughs> it, look, it's. Okay, full disclosure, we just saw this we movie. We just walked out of so it. So my thoughts are still weaving themselves together in my yeah, we head. We should have mentioned that. We, I, I do enjoy those reviews. We literally just, we just we walked came, across we, Palace Central yeah. at her talking about Yeah, we, we just saw the movie across the road from this studio. <laughs> <laughs> so no notes, no reflection. <laughs> yeah. But um, it it isn't that scary. It's not a jump scare movie. It's not trying to no, be a jump No, it's not scare a jump movie. scare movie. But a couple of points, it is. Yeah, it's going more for. um as Glenn said, suspense-building kind of horror. But even by that measure, a lot of the time I didn't find it that scary. Uh, But I guess this goes back down to more of the, the, whether I found the approach effective um, than the... um, uh, it's, It's just too predictable to be that scary.
0: I think it becomes predictable in the final act the final act there's no suspense because you know what's going to happen
1: this movie is what happens in this movie is exactly what everyone expects to happen going in so with that kind of narrative you need to find more ways to throw the audience off more ways to complicate you know more little, little moments of drama to you know so that with our suspension of disbelief we can think for a moment maybe things won't go the way we all expect them to but Ariasta at at a certain point stops caring to do that it's it's very straight down the line and the the surprise is more in the exploration of th- this alien kind of swedish mm. um Midsummer cultural tradition
0: Some of which The imagery people Will be familiar with Some of which you may not But if you've seen any films That profess to Cover the occult um, Certainly It will resonate A film that we reviewed Last year That is Spectacularly interesting To compare this to Because Oh I didn't like this film As much I think it dealt with The action better And covers so many Of the similar beats And that is Alex Garland's Annihilation It deals with another character Who at the very beginning Suffers a very horrific Family event And then surprisingly
1: coincidental. Uh, there's some quite coincidental, I think. Yeah, maybe coincidental. But, maybe um, not. <laughs> maybe not. But
0: they are in the regular environment. They go into a surreal, green, flower-filled environment with a number of other foreigners. And a lot of the imagery... I don't want to ruin anything about either film. imagery. A lot of the imagery, imagery is similar. And the conclusion, in some respects, even thematically, is very similar. I don't, nec- uh, I don't believe it was necessarily intentional. It's just I would note, while I didn't enjoy... That film was a drama as such. I feel the action beats... It wasn't predictable. And the ending, certainly in terms of Annihilation, or thus going to very distinct territory, wasn't predictable. And I'll give it that. Um, further on this movie, it's... I mean, so much of it comes down to that the, you really he really focuses on Rayner for so much of the emotional impact, particularly when it comes to um, the second half of the film. And he's just i don't feel and he's as he's up to scratch as a lot of the others um Poulter, harper they're great pug um she was she 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 was superb in this i i feel it could have used an editor It could have used someone to just cut a whole so that's unfair that's not fair, that's not fair. It should have it could have used more editing it could have used someone to cut a whole stretch out of this
1: yeah um I, again i I think we've just bred a kind of lack of discipline thinking more about it, it, it's pug right I've been saying it wrong the whole uh, time oh, I, or is it pew I'm going to look this <laughs> up
0: quickly I apologize if we've been mispronouncing it
1: yeah okay so I, th- I think what I, when I said before that the relationship between her character and Jack Reno's character is really the, the core of everything you can view this film as um, really using this alien uh space where they're surrounded by a a weird culture and awful things seem to be happening for no reason as an a metaphor for and an extension of the mental space of this woman who's grieving and feels like she doesn't have any support on and on that level it's it's interesting i did find some of the um the rituals interesting initially uh, and I admire the approach for at least trying to give us something a little different. Again, this movie it does evoke a lot of a lot of horror films that have come before, most notably The Wicker Man, as uh, I think Glenn alluded to earlier. Yes, yeah, The Wicker Man. Um, both a, both Wicker Men. There was a moment that that is directly lifted from um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that was just kind of distracting. Yeah, it,
0: how was that in there? How
1: it, it it seemed to be just there for the sake of an homage, but it was so removed from everything else that it just calls attention to itself as an homage Mm. and yeah it takes away from this film you know working on that level of serving to illustrate someone's uh mentally disturbed headspace when suddenly we're just shout out to my fave horror films
0: yeah from from 30 years 40 years ago
1: yeah which hereditary was just full of as well Yes. Moment. Oh, but
0: that was much more blatant in the terms of it's ripping off the ex, like, uh, Home Rises too, The Exorcist, The, the Exorcist, and Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby. Baby.
1: Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I think this was more of its own thing mm. than those films, and probably the most affecting kind of, um, grute- and the most grotesque horrorish scene in this. Uh, maybe it has been. It, it's not. A, it's strikingly original, but uh, I could see the way it was going to go. But the imagery and the way it plays out felt. At least somewhat fresh to me. Are you talking about a scene in the hut? I'm talking about a scene on cl- with cliffs. Okay. Um, I want to talk about that sequence in
0: a moment. I'm just, just going to read this hilarious tweet from Florence Pugh, uh, who was asked, how do you pronounce it? And she responds, like if you were pretending to have a shootout, you make all the noises yourself. Pew, pew, pew. Yes. To Florence Pugh. Well, okay. <laughs> um, on the sequence with the cliff, I really liked the sequence. I think it was one of the better ones in the film. I would be, And I would be interested to hear what viewers think of this. I came out of this... There's, a, I think, a reasonable interpretation that this film is playing fast and loose with ideas of time, and um, especially in the, in the summer escape that we're in. And I would note, um, should re- we
1: should we go spoilers?
0: Um, I guess we can. Okay, we've gone this far. We've far gone in. this far. We, we, if you
1: don't want to hear the movie spoiled, there's one more point I do want okay. to bring up before we go into spoilers, cool. All right.
0: and that is very simply that I've talked about on the show, for us with great frustration, how in modern horror directors don't fit in the advent of mobile communication to mobile phones. I think this film Good actually point. hounded it really well by not bringing it up at all. I think it was enough to leave it to the audience that we know, I just spent uh, January in Sweden, and I know for a fact that there are rural areas where your phone just does not work. And I think it was enough to assume that you're in this Woodford-type, out-there space in the middle of the hills. And it was okay just to assume, yeah, we don't need to mention it. People know there's no internet. The phone's not work, There's no electricity. We're just going to believe it, and that's fine. And I appreciated his approach. And I think, again, an elegant approach to this.
1: Although, and there are other aspects where the, um, whether or not modern technology fits into this can be a little bit confusing. So spoilers. Time for spoilers. If you haven't seen Midsummer, that's it for us. And we'll see you next week. If you have, here Um, we go. Here we
0: go. Here we are. Spoilers for Midsummer herein. Okay. So the sequence with. The cliffs. It involves a, um, a people who reach the age of seventy-two, yeah, um, which is the end of the life cycle. Throwing them off, throwing themselves off a cliff onto a rock face. In the event they do not die as a result of this, they are bludgeoned to death very graphically. And these sequences are shown incredibly graphically by Arias. That we see yep. faces and skulls be smashed in by giant mallets.
1: Yeah, well, very, it's very confronting. Before that, we see someone's face gets just smashed on the rock, and they, you know, they put their we see the body bounce, and the, the suddenly they have no face. Yeah, if, if, if you want to uh,
0: think of that, pretty si- gross. Think of the Hans Gruber's death in Die Hard, where you see no no noise, and you just feel him drop. You hear the pop when he hits the floor, except you see it happen. You see him them hit the floor, and just well, one well, like, unbroken still shot. Dread and then falling. Dread. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see? You see dread? Yes. Yes. Ex- <laughs> yes. Exactly. Dread. Yes. Yeah. Like, underrated movie.
1: Yeah, it's actually actually a lot of fun. So.
0: I th- I feel this film may be playing a bit fast and loose with time, and I'll note a couple of aspects. Um, the woman who died, the first one to throw herself off the cliff, had a very striking resemblance to Florence Pugh. I don't know if this was intentional or just coincidental, but this struck me too, and um, it looked like the man had a, actually quite a striking resemblance to not as striking, but a bit of a resemblance to Will Poulter. And I wonder what may be going on here. But further to that, it's notable, and this is very conspicuous, this inclusion, um, the Swedish friend who brings them all over, he notes that his parents died when he was very young in a fire and that we're the same and we're very like each other. It's noted throughout the film that Florence Pugh's presence, her character's presence, is essential to this once-in-90-year ritual. And while her, his parents, uh, well, her parents died in... Um, asphyxiation In very tragic circumstances His parents started the fire As did a number of other characters at The conclusion of the film The conclusion of the film features The culmination of the occult ritual Where nine people are put in a barn In various states of array And or alive or dead and they're all set on fire. And I wonder if this was an allusion to... Uh, it may not be 90 years in the way we think of 90 years, mm. but it's very possible that uh, they are playing but fast and loose with space and time. There here. might be
1: some... Well, time loops seem to be very much in vogue in, in pop culture at the moment. We've, yes. seen, we've been seeing a number of works dealing with that kind of idea, so I wonder if it's filtered through here. But as soon, whether or not that's happening, as soon as he said his parents died in a fire, I thought, you know, we hadn't even seen that people actually uh, sacrificed on fire, but I had assumed that's what had happened. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, it's, also, oh, it, just in terms of the time vortex and playing fast and loose with all this, the imagery as the car makes its way to the campsite, or what are we going to call it? Notably, there's a visual flourish which isn't emulated throughout the rest of the film where the camera pans upward and the road is now on top of the screen and the sky is on the bottom. We're seeing everything upside down and this continues until we actually arrive at the site. So they are really trying to evoke this otherworldly yeah. ex- extra dimensional place. Yeah,
1: we're going into into an upside yeah. Upside
0: and this whole film can be read metaphorically in fairness.
1: Yeah, I, I do feel like um the movie actually works best if you view it as a metaphor. Um the whole concept is absurd really. There's oh, no yeah. way that these people it's about it's a bunch of wealthy foreign people who've Americans. Americans and British. Yeah. Who presumably told um friends where they're going oh for god's sake they're doing their theses on this yeah like exactly. the press is gonna be like hmm they went to this
0: community we should follow up he's been late for semester
1: yeah if this is to be taken literally there's no way that these guys aren't all getting arrested very soon but then that's a criticism you
0: could have invoked to wicker man as well i mm. uh, more so nicholas cage version than it takes place right. on a day but yeah the, the wicker, man, Plumber version. wicker man in
1: the 70s you know you can you can buy it. You can buy it a little, but that's
0: the thing. This, this ritual takes place once every ninety years. It seems a little more plausible that this may have occurred a while ago, but no, suddenly we're. But that's this is the, the last time we're going to get to do it before we get raided. <laughs> but yeah, but th- 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 this, this is the one of the great things about occult films: the idea that this unbroken ritual, and now in modern day, we're still caught up in these ideals, yeah, which works. But then, no, um, you know, the cops are right around the corner. Yeah, you know, there's no way. <laughs> I mean, people. I mean, the Swedish fellow who was at the university. He wasn't the only one who's actively, like, you know, in and out of this commune. It, it can't be taken. It can't be taken
1: literally. Yeah. There's,
0: there's no thing to say. Don't worry, I'll take. I mean, it's it, it is plausible in the view that. This guy has an alternate name and is never going back to society, and no one didn't tell anyone where they were going. Mm. But the idea of two British people and four Americans disappearing in the middle of Sweden that's international news. Yeah, there's a big hunt going on right now. In
1: and, yeah, and and Interpol's it, it on their way. Presumably, they said where they're going to friends, right? We're going to go and witness this midsummer, even if they don't know the specifics.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. Someone, someone in the Swedish police knows. Hey, there's that dodgy group who live <laughs> out in the hills. Uh, we should check them out. Yeah,
1: the devil worshippers. Maybe they have something to. <laughs> no, the, they don't the, present themselves the, that way. The, the ones we tell everyone to avoid.
0: Maybe those six idiot, you know, foreigners went along really, to them.
1: I should say they're not really devil worshippers. They're pagans. Yes. Just to be clear, I did watch the movie, guys. <laughs> um, but the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre ripoff. Oh moment God. I, I mentioned it's just uh spoilers for the Texas yeah, Chainsaw Massacre yeah, can, can I say I've never actually seen it but I know the imagery right so there's a, yeah. basically there's a there's a big shock moment in Texas Chainsaw Massacre where um from out behind someone suddenly Leatherface comes out with a giant hammer and smacks a character on the head then drags them away um yeah. the exact same thing just suddenly happens in this movie there's a for some reason with the excuse I guess that he's inbred a guy with Leatherface you know, Leatherface's face, comes out of nowhere with a giant hammer and smacks someone on the head Then, while they're on the floor, twitching drags on the way. And even direct to the person, like, looking pretty much identical to the big bad of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, what was the point of throwing in such a direct homage other than to break the spell of this otherworldly place?
0: Yeah, it reminds me of, um, for those who had, did see Judy and Punch, the very uh, blatant... 6th, 17th century reference to gladiator where they spell out the entire
1: speech. It's just oh, right. we're in the real world exactly. now. Exactly, you've you've killed, and this kind of thing can work in like a Quentin Tarantino movie because the whole there's this kind of ironic, uh, you know, we are living in a world of movie references. Feeling going through the whole thing, but when that kind of thing just intrudes into something that's otherwise meant to cast a spell on you, then it just doesn't work at all. Uh, but of just a, as a, an aside, before we move on, as to Ari Aster's skills as a horror director the um the texas chainsaw scene where the exact same thing happens with the exact with almost identical imagery is way scarier and more shocking than the one <laughs> in midsummer that that's a film from um, you know most 45 years ago that I, the, I just feel it was too much in this is overdetermined and predictable you can feel when the scares are coming so it it just doesn't really work yeah anyway. um,
0: on the matter of the imagery the sequence in the hut let's talk about that the mm-hmm. shocking sequence where a character implicitly alive has his lungs and other bodily organs yep. strung out i'm um, reminding me of some of the more disgusting sequences in hannibal which was at least for its right. first at least for some stretches an excellent show um a lot of the imagery takes from obviously ideas of what Interpretations of what pagan folklore is. Um, the bear, I appreciate this may be a pretty standard part of it. But when I saw the bear, it made me think of Wicker Man, and suddenly I was again taken out of this. Yeah. And, and in fairness, we can't attribute it to the terror. Yes, there was a terrible sequence in Wicker Man where Nicholas Cage's the bear runs around. <laughs> it's so and, goddamn funny. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hilarious. And, that movie is so funny. <laughs> oh, it's a gra- it's a great comedy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And Lily Sobieski, who was awesome, and yeah, yeah. I don't think I've seen her in anything quite a bit. Uh, no, but I, I think we're going to give Ariastra a pass on that because clearly this is some. Fairly consistent iconography. I liked how um, some of the tapestries showed you how the plot was going to play out. Yeah, so it becomes less believ- uh, less unbelievable as that things was, progress. That was a nice touch. The bit where she gives him the glass and says, "This is basically to drug you, so we can. So what happens next will be easier for us." Yeah, and he's like, "No, no. Oh, okay, sure." So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I feel he seemed to be conscious of what was going on to a great degree, but going, it, it's not clear. Whether he how he seemed, extent he was conscious of the extent to which he was just unwillingly going along unwillingly participating in all this yeah it's really in,
1: initially he seems to be um, we're talking about the Jack Reiner character yes, by the way yes <laughs> yeah well yeah. we'll point it out um, initially he seems to be reluctant yeah but as the film goes on um, sorry initially he seem, he's okay with it because I'm having a good time with my buddies yeah but he becomes reluctant it, it basically Florence Pugh's character gets eventually it takes the whole movie to break her for her to become immersed in the proceedings and and in you know to start to enjoy it mm. but she's the reluctant person saying you know let's let's get the hell out of here and he's going no 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 babe it's so interesting and i want to do my thesis on this now He's just too much of a dick like the point was made that he was a dick i think that i like there's a real lack of subtlety in Ariasta's features to date and this is an example of that like It's obvious enough from the fact that he, at no point in the entire trip, is emotionally supportive to her at all.
0: After she's lost both her sister and parents, her entire immediate family, in a truly tragic event. Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, I think you can make the point that he's neglectful without being that obvious. Uh, After that, he always, um, you know, asks questions about like, oh, this is really interesting, whenever she shows any sign of concern. (laughs) um <laughs> he's getting whenever something seems creepy like oh so so does incest take place here like it's yeah. it's just it's a little bit too obvious um the, it's really a it turns into a revenge thing right like that at the end yeah. she gets to take her you know she she's really in in tune with the we- I, she i guess to try and read into it a little bit like she's become in tune with death because she's gone through this kind of grieving and so she can fit in with their rituals yeah. and he was the guy who never understood it or tried to understand and, and so she's a you know yeah, so he doesn't make it out
0: the film asks absent you being growing up and ingratiating yourself with this environment what would bring you in a short expanse of time to acclimatize yourself to it and these mm-hmm. are the extreme circumstances which is why they say we want you we want you to be there we want you along with us uh, the swedish fellow says no no you're a part of my community now um, another point on how this place vastly loses space and time at the point she starts speaking Swedish and I wonder whether that was literal or whether it was so much drug-induced
1: haze and yeah. the drug-induced like, aspects of this were really good visually they, it, the uh, psychedelic warping going on is is very well observed <laughs> mm. Yeah, <laughs> um, very well executed and, and not always drawn attention to
0: No, it's relatable like the the, sequ- the first sequence where they get high um, Will Poulter's character goes oh wait it's during the day
1: what is going on what's going on, on. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and
0: that's you know in that part of the world the sun stays up very late
1: that scene was hilarious also yeah. just Will, Will Poulter's idiot freaking out
0: yeah. it was extremely you know that, that those sort of sequences happen every day yeah. and from there it gradually escalates to Oh, um, I liked when the flowers started to modulate and the colours started to subtly move. Well, some beautiful special effects actually, where the leaves and the wildlife oh, the wildlife's the wrong word the um, just the plants started to just move and undulate and just come mm. here, and you're never quite sure. Yeah, um, is everyone on the same level as our protagonists? Is everyone on the same level as the people who found themselves in here? And there, it, it does however, strike me as strange that the sequence where they refer to at the refer to with the cliffs, they don't tell anyone what is about to happen. And that's strange to me because this is a sacred ritual Surely you would want to forewarn people so they maintain because it's fairly predictable. People who didn't know this was going to happen and never seen anything like this would react it's in the kind way of, they it's did. It's
1: kind of comical the way it's like, oh, Ingmar, Ingmar, you yeah, Night Bergman just... shout out, Ingmar, you you didn't you didn't warn them? Oh, how, I'm so sorry, you didn't you forgot to warn people that someone's face is just about two people's faces are just about to get splatted open. Yeah, you should, you should maybe just mention something. Um, <laughs> mention not to do anything
0: near the giant tree. It's not entirely... Will character takes a piss on it. It's pretty, it, it should be... Like, come it's on. a tree. And I, I appreciate yeah, yeah, it's yeah. holy. But that's something you... It's not obvious. It's not obvious. That's yeah, like, one of the things you warned people. <laughs> yeah, the things you aren't... At allowed to do here it's, <laughs> and you know, why weren't they dressed as you know, they could have at least said to them, here's some regular garb to help you fit in Yeah, and why so, are they
1: always marked out like you guys are the outsiders? I was wondering why they were never dressed in the, the white robes And they speak, you know what
0: I hate when films do this, they speak They they, they acknowledge that they can switch between English and Swedish And there are points where they say Oh, we want you to know what we're saying So we're going to speak English, fine mm-hmm. But they didn't do that the whole time There are points where they should have been just speaking in Swedish But for our benefit, fine
1: they, You could have used subtitles It's fine We yeah. don't mind subtitles well, Subtitles are cool To give the an idea of the kind of dumb horror movie uh, action I, I guess the movie is kind of fang, playing fast and loose with reality In the case of one of these examples But it doesn't always hold up I'll get to that example now Um Will Poulter's character, after who's been freaking out that um No, actually, the more I think about this, the more I don't buy this at all, even if we're playing fast and loose with with what is real. Will Poulter's character has been freaking out because after he's desecrated their sacred site, mm. this guy's been giving him a death glare. Right. Um, and, and he's oh. he's saying, like, is this like this guy, this guy really hates me, you know, is he gonna kill me? And then the next moment a milkmaid she's not really a milkmaid i'm just being smart ass
0: but um, <laughs> long red hair and a beautiful white dress and
1: yeah yeah come with me yeah she comes along and says come with me i will i will show you and to he where? and he I to will where? Show she, you. yeah come with me to where yeah i will show you oh i'm just going with her she's going to show me um if we had used something like oh he's drugged to be more suggestible i could buy that that but he moments before he's freaking out like the, these people hate me, are they going to kill me? and then he just goes goes with her and the movie's kind of tried to establish before that he's an idiot horny dude led led around by his dick, but I still don't buy in that scene that he wouldn't be a little bit oh God, can I trust these people okay it's i a
0: little bit it's a little bit outrageous, having said that though. When he slept in for the sequence where the people were throwing themselves to the cliff, his response was, "How did you not wake me?" Which lends. Oh, he said,
1: "Like of all the things, y- yeah, the, you know, you'd let me sleep through." Which lends
0: it's the idea that he would just go along with something like this. That yeah. oh yeah, I'm keen, I'm curious, I'll go. So I, I, I think yeah. I'm a little less harsh than you on this.
1: But just given the circumstances, you'd think that two people have have vanished and a guy's staring at, you know, with kind of weird (laughs) half-arsed excuses about where they went, and a guy is staring daggers at me, and multiple people have seemed angry with me. Oh, just come with me to, uh, yeah, the place. Sure, okay. (laughs) You know, like, it's a a bit much. but,
0: But at the same time, where else are they going to go? What else are they going to do? Yeah. They're the transport. They're kind of just... Another,
1: another example, Josh's character, Josh, who... Before you get on to that, I just sure. want to point out
0: the guy who's staring at them, to get an idea of how this com- comes across, and it's one of the more farcical, comical elements of the film, think of the neighbour in Game Night, just staring at them with the little dog. There are bits where it felt more extreme than need be.
1: Yeah, so Josh, they try and establish that he is studying the... Um... He's doing a PhD on the Midsummer traditions, so he has a reason to stay. But I, he was still depicted as the guy who's the, who, the most cute into that something creepy is going on here, yeah. and who's not, you know, the camera's telling us that he's noticing things aren't quite right. Yet he still goes alone to the temple in the middle of the night instead of just trying to get the hell out of there. So that he can get smashed by Leatherface
0: Yeah, a lot of people took both the, grabbed the idiot ball in this movie yeah. So that is Midsummer. It is in cinemas now Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in cinemas tomorrow And we'll be back next week Talking all things spoilers And extended discussion with the Ratneiru On Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Take care guys Take care guys, have a good night, enjoy movies